you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of puanard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it. And found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the the gift of hope. The gift of faith. The gift of a relationship with you. We lift you high. We glorify your name because you are all that we need. Holy Spirit, we pray that you may fill us now of abundance as we look at the Word. That you may challenge us, you may convict us, you may comfort us, and Lord, you may help us see Jesus and how incredible He is. And we pray all of this in His name. 
Amen. Amen. Hey, take a seat, City on a Hill. It is uh, good to be back uh, preaching uh, at this pulpit as well. I have a similar pulpit at Wollongong and I actually broke it from stepping on it. So I'll try not to step on this one. Um, But hey, let me begin with a question. And the question is this, what do you value in life? What do you value in life? It, It could be wealth, It could be your health, it could be your career, it could be your family, or it could be your home. If you don't know what you value in life, then ask yourself this diagnostic question, what are you willing to make sacrifices for? What are you willing to make sacrifices for? Let me give you an example. And so uh, most of you know I have three kids, and look, I value them, and I love them. And because I value them, I have sacrificed many things for them. I have sacrificed sleep, uh, personal space, uh, my up and goes in my fridge, and of course, the desire not to watch the movie Frozen once, let alone multiple times. What do you value in life? You know, maybe you value looking good. And so you sacrifice, you know, those long hours in the gym or sacrifice not having chocolates to get that rig that you desire. Maybe you value your career and so you have sacrificed long hours in the office and sacrificed holidays and times with friends and family to progress up the ladder in your occupation. Maybe you sacrifice many things for whatever you value in life. It could be, for example, if you're a student, maybe what you value is a good grade. And so similar to, I guess, the career element, you sacrifice long hours to study so you can try and obtain that value, I mean, that grade that you value. What do you value in life? In 2011, social scientists at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development created a Better Life survey online where they basically asked thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world to answer that question, what do you value in life? And from the results, we learned that Europeans value health, Americans value life satisfaction, and Australians, g'day mate, we value work-life balance. Now, one thing I found interesting about this survey, which is pretty obvious, is that when you look globally between what people value and their circumstances, there's a really big correlation. And so if you live in a a country that's less developed, what you value is not so much a work-life balance, but income, shelter, and safety. Which raises the question, is, is what we value in life really that important in the scheme of things? Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, that Bible reading that was just read out to us by Emma. And in this Bible reading of Mark 14, we're going to come across three different people. And we're going to, I guess, reflect on what we value by looking at what they value in life. And as we look at Mark 14, we're going to come across three characters. Uh, We're going to come across a scandalous woman, a shady snitch, and a sacrificial savior. And so let's go to Mark 14, and let's begin by getting introduced to a scandalous woman. And so you have a Bible, open it up, come with me, turn it on. Let's have a look at Mark 14. It will also come up on the screen. And let's have a look at verses 1 to 2 to get some context of this story. So verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest 
had been uproar from the people. Now, in Mark 11, you might know that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and there was a whole bunch of people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which basically means Savior. So a whole bunch of people were excited that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And yet at that time, historians also know that Jesus was not the only person trying to go to Jerusalem at this time of the year. You see, it was Passover time. And so there's, we're told around maybe tens to possibly hundreds of thousands of people are traveling in to the city of Jerusalem for this festival, which like in our, I guess, day is almost like Anzac Day, Australia Day, and Christmas combined. Like this is a big deal. And so everyone is traveling to Jerusalem. But unlike other people, Jesus, as he traveled into Jerusalem, had a target on his back. The religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they had got a bit tired of Jesus' miracles and teaching. And so they wanted to arrest him and kill him. And so with that context in mind, let's meet a scandalous woman in verse 3. And while he, that's Jesus, was at Bethany, that's a small town about three kilometers outside Jerusalem, walking distance, uh, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it all over his head. Uh, years ago, when uh, my younger son Isaac was like a toddler, like uh, still in nappies and just walking and crawling around the house, um, my mum bought me a bottle of uh, perfume. I mean, cologne, manly cologne. Let me get that right. Manly cologne. And, and you know when you get like a new bottle of perfume or cologne, you know, you just like, you get in the habit of putting it on it each day. You know, you spray it on, you smell good, and you just get this new swagger. And you like leave the house and, you know, feel good about yourself. And, and so I did that, uh, just like you would. Uh, and I did that every single day for about a week. But what I didn't know is that uh, Isaac uh, was watching me when I did this. And, and so one time I, I did this, and then, and then I went off, and, and I left the house, and Isaac sneakily crawled into the bathroom and then got my bottle of uh, cologne, uh, and, but he couldn't figure out how to spray it, you know, because <laughs> he's a toddler. And so instead, he got it, and he smashed it on the bathroom floor. That worked, and then he just got a whole bunch of the cologne and then just smeared it all over his, like, half-naked body and then just crawled out like he had, you know, some new swagger himself, like a boss baby. He smelled pretty good for, like, months, you know, what he did, though, in, in many ways, was pretty harmless. But what this woman did here in this story, I hope you can understand, it is scandalous. It is scandalous. Now, maybe today, you're probably wondering, what do you mean by scandalous, Joel? Like, it's a bit weird, right? Like, like, like for example, right now, if I had a bottle of cologne and I, you know, smashed it on the floor or, and I went and poured it all over Dave Martell's head, for example, you'd think that's a bit weird. All loving, depending upon how you think Dave smells, right? But it's weird, but maybe not scandalous, why is this scandalous? Well, you see, back in this culture, unfortunately, as you would know, uh, this woman here is breaking social boundaries of her day, interrupting men who are eating together. That, that's scandalous. Uh, but, but also, she is recklessly breaking an expensive jar of perfume. That is scandalous. But then also, she's not giving like a sample like they do at Maya. No, she's pouring out the whole thing over Jesus' head. And so people are shocked. Have a look at verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. 
Uh, most likely these other people are the disciples and they're rebuking this woman because it, you know, fair enough, they're like, this perfume is expensive. You could have given it to the poor and the needy. You could have sold it and given the money to help feed people. And you're probably thinking, you know, maybe Jesus is going to rebuke her as well. Because earlier in Mark's gospel, in Mark 10, he told a rich man to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. But, but look what Jesus says. No, he doesn't rebuke her. He says something else. In verse 6, he says, Leave her alone. That's nice, sticking up for a woman in this context. That's good. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. It's good that he sticks up for her, but a beautiful thing? I think the disciples have a point. Isn't this a waste? Jesus goes on. He says, verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. I hope you see how this statement is even scandalous. Jesus is effectively saying, look, I'm more important than poor people. Don't worry about them right now. Uh, one of my favorite uh, footballers, uh, he's, uh, it's because he's probably because he's tall uh, like me uh, and almost as skillful as me at football, uh, is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He uh, doesn't play for Paris um, anymore, but he did a few years ago. He now plays for AC Milan. He's getting a bit old, uh, and so he's losing his skills, but he's got a bit of a personality, old Zlatan. And uh, a few years ago when he was uh, playing in Paris, he was definitely the best player um, in the league, let alone for his club. And in 2013, there was another famous footballer, you might have heard of him, called David Beckham, who's not playing anymore. But at this point in time, in 2013, he decided to donate $6.5 million of his salary to the poor children of Paris. After hearing this, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, it's got a difficult name to say, was interviewed about this and whether or not he would give money to the poor as well. And this is what he said. He said, I have heard Beckham's decision and it made me think, who is most deserving of all the money that I, Zlatan, and paid? The answer is Zlatan. Get this, this is great. Not great, but anyway. The children of Paris are not leading League One in goals this season. I am. I have 20 goals. The next best player has 12. 12! If anything, the children of Paris should be giving me even more money for having the privilege of being in the same city as my incredible quality. And so should David Beckham. <laughs> Call it a zlatable donation. Isn't that ins- absurd? Of course it is. But, but think for a moment, isn't what Jesus is saying here also quite absurd? If you are new to church or are coming back to church for, for the first time in a long time, I'm glad you're here. I hope this is a gift for your soul. But uh, also, if you've just been part of church or even met a Christian or, or maybe just even through, I don't know, watching TV, you've probably heard of the two greatest commandments in the Bible. Uh, the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so part of you can sort of think, well, isn't Jesus here contradicting himself here? Like he gave that great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And yet here he is wasting perfume. He is approving of this woman doing this act and saying it's a beautiful thing. Isn't he contradicting himself here? Well, he would be. Unless this woman's act is actually obeying the first and the greatest commandment to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is exactly what this woman is doing. She is worshiping God as she pours his perfume over his head. 
Because Jesus is God. And maybe thinking, okay, Joel, all right, cool. Jesus is God, I get that. Yes, but why such expensive perfume? Well, let's have a look at verse 8. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, now listen up. This, this detail is really important and profound. On numerous times in Mark's gospel, if you read the Bible and, and any of the gospels, you'll see that Jesus is not shocked and surprised by the cross and the resurrection, right? Like he knew it was coming. He predicted it many times to his disciples and many times his disciples just didn't believe him. But here, what we see is that this woman genuinely believes that Jesus is going to die and he's going to resurrect, because you see, back in this culture, uh, when a, a corpse was to die, an important corpse in particular, after the death, you would, you would go and you would anoint it with this perfume as, as a sign of respect and, and honor. And yet what's interesting, of course, is that in this story, she doesn't wait till Jesus dies. No, she does it before he dies. And we might think, oh, that's just a coincidence. But I genuinely do believe it's because this woman genuinely believes that Jesus is going to die, as he said, but also he's going to rise. That there's not going to be enough time for her to go and to anoint this body. She believes he's going to resurrect from the dead. That is why Jesus says in verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Can you see how incredible her faith is? You know, the good news of the gospel is it's not just about Jesus' death at the cross, as important as that is for our sin and our salvation. It's also about his resurrection. And she had faith in both. That is why she just breaks social etiquette. That is why she breaks the most expensive perfume bottle she has to worship the God-man in the flesh. You see, in Mark 14, we're introduced firstly to a scandalous woman. And what does she value? She values Jesus, and she's willing to sacrifice wealth for him. But maybe still thinking, but Joel, why expensive perfume? Well, back in this culture and this day, the value of perfume that you would use to anoint a dead body represented the value of that person. Okay, and so Jesus being the King of kings and the God of gods, the Lord of lords, of course he gets the most expensive perfume that this woman could possibly find. But also, it just makes sense, right? Like, it would just be weird if, if, like, Jesus, you know, instead of had the most expensive perfume, had, you know, Brute for Men or Lynx Cologne poured over him, right? This doesn't sit well. This story firstly begins with this scandalous woman, how she values Jesus. Let's move on, though, and let's meet the second character, the Shady Snitch. The Shady Snitch, which we have a look at and learn about in verse 10 to 21. Verse 10, read with me. Then Judas Iscariot, bad guy. The shady snitch, who was one of the 12, that's like a close friend of Jesus, one of the disciples, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard that they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Uh, John's gospel tells us that uh, Judas looked after, I guess, the money when it comes to the 12 disciples, right? Maybe, I don't know, he was good with money. Maybe like money was an idol in his heart. We're not too sure. But he was the one that was responsible for looking after the money for the 12 disciples and for Jesus. Uh, and like um, anyone who's ever played Monopoly, uh, the person who is the banker is usually corrupt and a thief. Um, and so it's the case here in Judas. We're told that he was a thief in other Bible passages, and in verses 10 to 11, after we, after we learn about how Judas is going to betray Jesus, you know, I don't know about you, but personally, I want the next part of the verse to be that someone went and told Jesus. 
that someone gave Jesus a heads up. You're going to be betrayed. Did you know this? But instead of that happening, which I would have liked and probably you would have liked, we come across this weird side story. It's a side story of how the disciples are preparing for Passover and how Jesus gives them directions on what to do. And it's a bit strange, and you're a bit like, what's the point of this narrative? And yet, upon reflection, what I've realized is the point of this narrative is to highlight to us that Jesus is in control. He he knows what is about to come when it comes to Judas. So he is in control. He's in control of Passover and trying to find a room for a whole bunch of people in Jerusalem at this time of year, which is really crowded. You know, like us guys from Wollongong trying to find a table last night in Melbourne. That was difficult. You know, let alone in Jerusalem at Passover. Jesus, completely in control of that. He was in control of a place where the disciples would be able to stab a lamb for Passover, but also he was in control of a location where he was going to be stabbed in the back. Jesus was in control. Let's have a look at verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after the another, is it, is it I? You probably know this. Uh, in, in Jewish culture, even to many Jews today, you don't eat with strangers. You, know? like you don't invite them into your house. You know, that's a rare thing for you to do. But it, it, what is common is you eat with your friends, you eat with your family. And so that's what's going on here. This is an intimate meal between Jesus and his friends, his 12 disciples who he's been journeying with for three years. Judas is a friend. Peter turns to Jesus and says, surely not I. John turns to Jesus and says, surely not I. And even Judas turns to Jesus and says, surely not I. Verse 20, and Jesus said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man when the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Personally, this part of the, the Bible depresses me. To have a friend that you, that you did life with for three years, that you walked with, that you laughed with, that you ate with, that you shared stories with, betrays you. Judas was a shady snitch who thought money was the most valuable thing. And he was willing to sacrifice Jesus to gain it. Judas makes a massive mistake that we can learn from. And the massive mistake is this, is he overvalues something of insignificant value. He overvalues something of insignificant value. Uh, William Shakespeare, uh, I believe, has probably the most expensive uh, signature in the world. If you want to try and buy a a signature of William Shakespeare, I think it'll cost you around about $3 million. And yet one of the, I think the second possibly, I'm not so sure if it still is the second, but it was a few years ago, the second most valuable signature in the world is the signature of Button Gwinnett. Somebody that you probably never heard of. Uh, Button was a British man, and he wasn't necessarily someone to remember. Uh, he didn't accumulate much things in his life but debt. Um, he was just a bit of someone who just was a battler and really struggled at life. Most things he touched in life turned to ruin. Um, and even the way he died, he ended up dying by losing a gun jewel. Um, 
there's nothing special about this man at all. He is a nobody. And yet one thing he did do of significant, I guess, importance is he signed the Declaration of Independence. And apparently lots of people want to have and collect all the signatures of those who signed this declaration. Um, and in total, though, because Button's life was, well, a bit of a disaster, uh, he didn't write many things or do many things. There's not many signatures of him. I think there's about 51 of them and only a few are available for sale. Um, and majority of them are IOUs. Um, like this guy didn't do much and I learned about this in the podcast radio lab and um, on this podcast the journalists were talking about this moment where they actually went to go visit a museum or wherever it was where they could actually see one of the signatures of, of Button Gwinnett and the, and the radio host shared how while he was standing in front of it he, he didn't so much have a temptation to, to steal this signature which is worth close to a million dollars no, he said he had this temperature, temperature uh, sorry, um, he had this temptation instead to just rip it up. Because like, this is absurd that this is worth so much. In Mark 14, we're introduced to our second person, Judas the Shady Snitch. And in church, what does he value? He values wealth and is willing to sacrifice Jesus for it. And that is both depressing and disgusting. Like, how, how could he be so dumb to, to, to not see what was right in front of him in Jesus? He would have seen Jesus' miracles. He would have heard the teachings of Jesus. He would have seen so many evidences of God's grace. And yet he chooses wealth over Jesus. You know, what Judas did was disgusting and, and depressing. And yet, I want to challenge us as Christians. to. I want to remind you that, that Judas wasn't a character that was formed out in the big, black, bad world out there. I want to remind you that actually Judas was formed, his character was formed in the church with Jesus. In 1856, the pastor, F.W. Krumacher, published some thoughts and reflections about Judas, which are really quite confronting. Let me read out what he said. The heathen world has no Judas and could not produce such a character. Such a monster matures only in the radiant sphere of Christianity. He entered into too close contact with the Savior, not to become entirely his or holy Satan's. You know, I think when we think of Judas... You know, we can always like categorize him and put him in the same camp as like there's evil people in the world or, you know, there's Satan, there's Hitler, and there's Judas. And what he did, of course, is an evil thing. Without a doubt, what he did was a wrong thing and something to be condemned and judged for. But I hope you realize that Judas is more like you and I than we dare to admit. You see, unlike Satan, I don't believe Judas hated Jesus with all of his heart. He was friends with Jesus. He did life with Jesus. It's just he made one decision after the other where he kept on getting tempted and lured for more wealth and more money, and he kept on going down that path rather than trusting and following Jesus. Personally, my heart, like your heart, is tempted to sacrifice Jesus for wealth. Personally, my heart is constant to lure, is, sorry, is lured in to overvalue things of insignificant value. Especially in this economic climate where interest rates are going up, inflation is going up, everything's going up. We are all feeling the pinch financially. Do I, do I give to church this week? Do I, am I generous with my money to this person this week? Like, like those questions go through all of our minds all the time. 
We are all can be like Judas. There can be a little Judas within each of us where we will not value Jesus, but we value our own wealth and our own comforts in this world. The unfortunate reality is that each of us has overvalued things in this world that have got insignificant value. We maybe haven't betrayed Jesus like Judas did in that brutal and depressing nature, but each of us in this room, but if you follow Jesus or not, has betrayed Jesus, be it for wealth or something else that you deeply value, that you're willing to sacrifice Jesus for. Be it your career, be it your relationship, be it your home, be it your body, be it anything, you could go on and on and on. And that is why the Bible calls and the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that all deserve judgment, not just Judas, but us. That's why the Bible says that we are enslaved to sin. And just like the Egyptians who were enslaved in Egypt and needed to be freed, needed to be saved. And so the Passover lamb came and represented their salvation. So we need a Passover lamb. So we need a sacrificial savior who will save us from ourselves and redeem us. And of course, that is the third character we see in this story. A sacrificial savior. Have a look at verses 22 to 26 with me. Beginning in verse 22. And as, sorry, and as they were eating and he took bread and after blessing it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. You know, once again, here, Jesus is prophesizing. He's telling his disciples, I am going to die. I am going to suffer. My body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be poured out. And he's just basically here now trying to make the message so clear that he's using props, right? It's like this bread is going to be broken. That's going to be me. The blood is going to be poured out. You know, that's the drink. That's the cup. You know, Jesus knew he's going to be betrayed. He knew he's going to be handed over to the religious leaders. And yet what is so incredible about Jesus is he doesn't run away from his death, but instead he walks towards it. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that his body would be broken. He knew that his blood would be poured out to save people like Judas and like us. The blood of Jesus. Church, in our context, in our day, in our society, talking about the blood of Jesus is a primitive and and unpopular subject and concept. And yet the Bible is clear that by the blood of Jesus, we are justified, we are blessed, we are redeemed, we are reconciled, we are cleansed, and we are forgiven. Billy Graham. Was, and when he was a young, profe- a young preacher, had a professor from Cornell University come up to him and say to him, after he'd uh, delivered a sermon, he said, Son, you are a good speaker. You speak with authority and clarity. You can go places in the ministry. But I want to suggest you leave out that blood stuff. Don't speak about the blood. It is uncultured, uncough, and you'll go far if you leave it out, the message of the blood. From that moment onwards, Billy Graham was determined more than ever (laughs) to preach and to talk about the blood of Jesus. In this passage, this woman does a beautiful thing and the disciples don't see that. What they saw was something scandalous and offensive. Here's my question to you. How do you view the cross? Is the cross Jesus dying for our sin and shame, suffering on our behalf? Is that, is that a scandalous, offensive thing to you, or is that a beautiful thing? Where literally the most 
precious, expensive liquid in the cosmos, Jesus' blood is poured out so we may be redeemed, so we may be forgiven. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope that you understand that God loves you in abundance, but also that God values you in abundance as well. You know, in our society, we think it's okay, just what you think about yourself is all that matters. And yet deep down, you know that that's a lie. Deep down, you know for you to be called smart and to actually be smart objectively, you need a smart person to say you're smart. For you to objectively be a good person, you need a good person to say that you are good. For you to be a valuable person, it can't just be you looking in the mirror saying, I am valuable. You need a valuable person to say you are valuable. And at the cross, the blood of Jesus does exactly that. As the most valuable being in the universe cries out, you are unique, you are special, you are valuable because I have washed you by my blood. That is the good news of the gospel. That is an amazing good news of the gospel that frees you from trying to find value in this world and other things because you have your value in Jesus. Sit on a hill, what does this sacrificial savior value most? Jesus thought we were valuable and he sacrificed himself for us. In this passage, this scandalous woman, she sacrifices wealth for Jesus. The, sac- the shady snitch sacrifices Jesus for wealth and Jesus sacrifices himself for us. This story is written in such a way to rhetorically ask us the question, who are we like? Are we like this scandalous woman or are we like this shady snitch? And so can I plead with you that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or if you were before, but maybe not following him right now, can I encourage you to be like this scandalous woman, to lay aside what people think about you and to come before the Lord of Lords and worship him with everything you have. Can I encourage you not to be like Judas, Judas who instead of bowing down to Jesus betrayed him. Judas who ended up regretting his actions, but it was too late for him to repent when he realized what he had done. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, may we be inspired by this scandalous woman. May we keep on sacrificing things for our Lord and Savior because he is worth it. May we come before him in worship But also, I don't want to leave here trying to help you, I guess, be like the scandalous woman. She is great and glorious, yes. I want to remind you just of how great Jesus is and how he was poured out for us. Because what he did is even better than what this woman did. And so let me ask you this question. Do you value Jesus? Do you value him? Do you worship him with everything you have? Because unfortunately, I think... Within our hearts, we, can, we have the temptation to undervalue things of incredible value. Uh, there's an artist that, that most of you know. Uh, his name is uh, Banksy, and he's uh, from Bristol in England. Uh, and his artwork is truly incredible. Uh, however, most agree that the reason why his artwork is so valuable, with some of his pieces selling for, for millions of dollars, it's because no one really knows who Banksy is. You see, he doesn't parade around like most artists, you know, if they're, they're trying to promote their name so people can buy their stuff. No, instead he creates his art in secret 
and usually on the streets. And in 2013, Banksy created 25 pieces of art, and then he sold them at Central Park, New York, for $80 each. The park was staffed by this old man who clearly didn't know what he was doing, but that's okay. And then the next day, Banksy posted a YouTube video of all his art that he had sold at New York. The art scene went mad. (laughs) One woman who bought one of the pieces of art for $160 sold it later for $300,000. On that day, the people of New York undervalued something of incredible value. I want to be honest with you, we can make the exact same mistake when it comes to Jesus. As we walk around our neighborhoods, as, as we live in the city of Melbourne or the city of Wollongong, we might see nice houses and nice cars and nice things and nice food and nice clothes, and we start to, to value them, we allow our heart to wander and be like, I want that, that's what I need. Forgetting that the most valuable thing in the universe that you can have for free right now is Jesus. And not just for now, but for eternity is a relationship with Him. This scandalous woman, she saw that. She was willing to lay down the most precious thing she had. The shady snitch, unfortunately over time, his heart was deceived and lured and tempted away. He undervalued Jesus and of course the sacrificial savior. He gave himself up for us. Church, we're about to sing. Can I encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to sing as loudly as you can because Jesus is not just worthy of perfume, he's worthy of your praise. And so church, I want you to stand right now and then I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave you with a question and a statement and then I'm going to pray and the band is going to lead us in worship. The statement is this, you are valuable to Jesus. Not because you specifically are special, but because his blood is special. Here's my question, is he valuable to you? Is he valuable to you? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and his blood that was spilled on our behalf for our sin, our betrayal, for the times, Lord, when we seek to find value in the things of this world rather than our Lord and Savior. Father, train our souls to worship you daily, to see what is true and is right, and to worship Jesus with everything we have. We thank you for him, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.